welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Please open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 9. And you'll notice, uh, if you've been here, that over the last three weeks we've been studying the narrative of uh, Philip the Evangelist, and we have discovered that God reaches people, all right? In Samaria, God had reached the, the uh, social outcast. Samaritans, they, they had been separated from God for centuries, uh, but now are being reconciled to Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, through Christ His Son. Similar to the social outcast of Samaria, the ceremonial outcast, uh, like the Ethiopian we saw last week, uh, he has learned from Philip Uh, Using the scroll of Isaiah, again, Scripture again and again being the focus of these conversions, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch has learned that the Lord God no longer forbids a eunuch from the assembly of worship. Those who were previously under the law deemed unclean are now cleansed through the blood of Christ, and by faith we are all brought near. Of course, uh, he, the Ethiopian, he, he departed rejoicing, uh, knowing that under this new and better covenant, uh, even a eunuch can reproduce, knowing that that is fulfilled spiritually. And in fact, uh, numerous extra-biblical records describe that that man, that eunuch, returned to Ethiopia and Africa, uh, becoming himself an evangelist uh, once he arrived. And I'd like to highlight a critical element in this narrative as we we continue this discussion of evangelism, uh, and as we set our minds to do the same, to be evangelists, uh, we we will strike out ourselves like Philip, and uh, we have to recognize that these people were drawn to faith by the power of God's Spirit, through the proclaiming of God's Word. All Philip had to do is preach Christ from the Word. Those who responded proved to be uh, the good soil uh, prepared by God. They, they were excited. They were enthused to receive the good Word, uh, the rich seed of the gospel that Philip shared. Uh, so as an evangelist, Philip had preached, you know, even to the social outcast, the, the ceremonial outcast, as the powerful Holy Spirit redeemed them from their sins. Please note that Philip had no previous relationship with these people. He, he did not have to befriend the eunuch first. That prerequisite... That supposed prerequisite proposed by a process called you know, re- relational evangelism. You've probably heard of that. Uh, that prerequisite is a farce. It's a farce. Philip did not need to first take time to get to know the people. 
Such an idea doesn't depend upon the power of God's Spirit, the preaching of the powerful Scriptures in God's Word to prove redeeming. It suggests rather that, uh, well, effective evangelism, you know, it, it hinges upon warming up to people. Warming up to them so that they'll warm up to you. Given a period of time, it is proposed, uh, bridging common interests like golfing or fishing and finally, you know, really getting together, uh, becoming friends that uh, through these common interests, the gospel will be bridged. Uh, that idea of, of having to have that, that, that is simply wrong. There's nothing wrong with nurturing relationships, all right? I don't want to be misunderstood, but the Holy Spirit does not sit by idly, nor is spiritual regeneration in any way contingent upon first uh, forming a relationship. The gospel, folks, is the power of God unto salvation, it's not the power of cultivated relationships, and the gospel is never to be reduced to, to merely a social construct. Uh, it is a supernatural work, a, a spiritual rebirth by God's Spirit uh, through the sovereign hand of God. Another thing that we need to recognize is uh, neither does evangelism hinge upon first meeting the person's felt need. Now that, that is a second fallacy that, that proposes, an, a, a, you know, unless you have first fed them or clothed them or maybe given them a gift card somewhere, some other lure to reel them in, until you've done that, their heart just can't warm to the gospel. You know, we need to have some material lure of some kind to, to prime the pump so that the Spirit of God can work. And uh, that idea, likewise, it's man's invention, proposes, a, you know, proposes that a response to the gospel, you know, it's a result of, of a good social preparation, a social conditioning, rather than a supernatural regeneration. We never see Philip, nor the apostles, nor, nor anyone else in the New Testament uh, needing to pay somebody off first in order that they might be redeemed in Christ. Um, you don't have to buy somebody a hamburger first or pay their electric bill first or, or anything else so that they can be warmed to the gospel and open. Uh, the work of Philip should reassure us that evangelism is not an exchange of goods. It's not commerce, but an exchange of the truth. The truth is what we must share. Folks, this, this really should be an encouragement to us as we pursue evangelism. Uh, we are going to have an evangelism course, uh, by the way, during adult Bible class hour once we finish uh, the Gospel of Mark, once uh, Mike has finished that, probably toward the end of the year, uh, maybe we'll wait until after Christmas to start that new series. Uh, but uh, we are going to have an evangelism course to offer as well. But evangelism doesn't hinge upon what we offer. It hinges upon what God offers, and that is forgiveness of sins through His Son. Uh, we're merely the mouthpiece 
We speak the truth. Uh, if an individual is convicted of his or her sins, uh, that, that itself is a work of the Holy Spirit of God, a ministry of conviction by the Holy Spirit. And, and if God has opened their heart to respond, as seen in Lydia, Acts chapter 16, that soil will be ready to receive the word of God. All you need to do is sow it. All you must do is sow it. If their heart is not opened by God, then there is nothing that you or I could do to pry it open. The New Testament model then for evangelism is this. We're praying for open doors. We're being sensitive for open doors. And then we're courageously stepping through the open doors while depending upon a powerful work by the Holy Spirit who grants rebirth. Now, as I've said this, I don't want to be misunderstood further. Christians are to be known for our doing good to all men. Uh, As Galatians 6 verse 10 describes, beginning with and especially to the household of God. That's where generosity begins among the redeemed. Uh, we saw that, by the way, witnessed early on in, in the book of Acts. They were bringing their, their resources together and sharing with those other Christians who were redeemed as well. And benevolence has always been first prioritized towards Christ's church. By comparison, evangelism is prioritized towards the unbelievers, I'm taking a moment to clarify this before moving on with the story of Saul, uh, because uh, the American church has has had this backward for so long. In Scripture, you first meet their spiritual need, that is forgiveness of sins. Then, according to God's power, they enter into the body of Christ by faith. They they join the fellowship of believers where we then supply their bodily needs according to uh, what they are lacking. Surely how we use our money, how Christians are known for using their money, will influence people for God's kingdom. We are told, Matthew 5, verse 16, to let our light shine before men. Do it in such a way that we may, they may see our good works and glorify our God who is in heaven. But we need to remain suspicious of the popular uh, yet inaccurate idea that to effectively evangelize, we, we have to you know, form that relationship first, or, or we have to hand them a, a snack or a sack of groceries first to prime the pump to open their heart. That, that just is not so. <clears throat> Again, Acts, verse, Acts chapter 16, verse 14, as Paul approached Lydia to share the gospel, we are told, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. God's the one who opens the heart. Our function in evangelism is to speak the word. Because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And, and I, I would ask that you consider actually that, you know, attempting to buy somebody into Jesus, you know, kind of pay them off, 
give them a little something so that they'll come around and warm up to Jesus, uh, I would suggest that lacks confidence in the power of God's Spirit and in divine grace. Uh, Though you may find yourself as a Samaritan, as we often do, find ourselves as a good Samaritan doing something good to a needy stranger, that is God's will also. It is not a prerequisite to God opening their heart. This will be the probably the most socially awkward or maybe offensive thing that you've heard in a really long time. But due to the lack of confidence in the redeeming word of God, the power of the gospel, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and share it. Due to theological error, Christians have made our top priority the feeding and clothing of unbelievers, millions, even billions spent in hopes that it will cause spiritually dead pagans to eventually warm up to us and like us instead of using those same funds, millions and billions to support missionaries and evangelists who will preach to those unbelievers, trusting that God will open the heart. That's what we're to do. The tradition, the the denomination that I grew up in, quite honestly, they have completely gone all in for being nice to people, and they refuse to share the gospel. We're just going to be really, really nice as their theology. Um, We're going to go to church, and uh, we're going to welcome people. We're going to be so kind to them. And, uh, but we don't want to offend them with the gospel. But they'll eventually warm up to us, and they'll start to like Christians. And then they'll want to be just like us. And that is a theology of liberal, uh, of liberal thinking today, that it's not the word. It's not confronting sin, uh, but instead it's just being nice to people. That's, that's the modern Christianity, actually much more common than true Christianity today. <clears throat> God opens the heart. He does the opening. Our responsibility, like Philip the evangelist, is to be bold in the sharing. Because if the Spirit of God intends to redeem them, God Almighty is going to get them. No matter how resistant to the gospel, they have always been. A case in point for study today, as we turn to Acts chapter 9, is Saul. Saul has heard the gospel time and time again. His hardness against it even even fuels a hatred. It's causing him to both persecute and prosecute uh, Christians, he's hunting them down. They, they, they have assured Saul through the preaching of the gospel that he cannot attain salvation through good works. He cannot attain it through keeping the law. Meanwhile, Saul the Pharisee, he has devoted his entire life to keeping the Levitical laws to pursuing self-righteousness and self-improvement through his works. And he is a very hard case. He stands relentlessly opposed to the idea of God's free grace and the gospel truth in Jesus Christ. Is Saul's conversion then 
Simply a matter of somebody like Philip coming along and sharing the gospel with him one more time. No, no. Who is going to have to win Saul to saving faith? It is Jesus himself who is going to step in. By the way, uh, this is a unique calling to apostleship, a unique calling of Saul, a a one-time event. We're going to find by the time we close, this isn't, isn't normally the way that God works. Yet it is an event in our passage that assures us that nobody, nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. Nobody is beyond it. It's an evidence in defense of irresistible grace, by the way. Saul isn't going to have a lot of choice in the matter. The conversion of Saul proves God is going to get whomever he is determined to get. Jesus said in John 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. To certain Jews, he also stated in John 10, verse 26, telling Jews, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, says Jesus, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know, Saul has has proven himself to be a really reluctant sheep. Really bad. (laughs) Sorry, I had to. I had to. But he is going to hear the shepherd's voice loud and clear today. And you'll notice as we now read verses 1 through 19, Saul clearly understands the claims that have been made by Christianity. He's now searching for those who belong to this this new religious movement that is commonly being referred to as the way. That's what it's being called. The way. Talk about irony. Jesus is the way, and Saul is pictured as trying to destroy it. Let's read to see how that goes for him. In verse 1, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was finished traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was 
three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Yeah, I would have kind of lost my appetite as well. Verse 10, (coughs) excuse me. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias. And he said, "Here, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying hands on him said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road by by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there were from his eyes, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So if we want to divide this passage into two portions, you know, we, we seem to have our Lord's confrontation with Saul. That's verses 1 through 9. And then three days later, Christ's commissioning of Saul. That's verses 10 through 19. And we only have time left today to deal with uh, the first, to deal with Christ's confrontation of Saul. It, it is truly extraordinary. You know, if any one of us here may have ourselves encountered Saul, you know, we might have handled him a little bit differently. You know, a typical Christian is quite protective of Christ's church. You know, I, I know most pastors and, and shepherds, you know, if, if we were granted the power and the authority, you know, we'd probably just vaporize him. Just get it out of the way. Take care of him. Because we know Saul is no good, right? No good at all. And in doing so, we might even find ourselves feeling quite justified because we, like Ananias, we know the history of Saul. Just a very bad man. By his own admission, Saul even will, will later, who, who he becomes known as Paul, Saul will later uh, reveal while writing our, excuse me, our earlier scripture reading, when he later writes 1 Timothy, he's going to reveal that he had previously been a blasphemer and and a persecutor and a, a violent aggressor. In fact, he even refers to himself as the chief of all sinners. Yet in the fullness of God's timing... There, there comes a point in Saul's life where there is a spiritual conversion as seen in our text. 
there comes a day. And eventually we know Saul will begin using his Roman name, Paul. And that reason may be partially because his ministry is more towards Greek-speaking nations. But the the name change may also be partially due to the fact that the Hebrew name Saul means to be desired. There's not much to be desired about Saul, is there? By comparison, the Greek name Paul, it means little or small. I, I imagine in light of God's abundant grace, Paul kind of preferred that name. I don't know. My last name is Paul, so I guess you could start calling me Little John. Boy, am I glad my classmates back in high school didn't know the Greek meaning of Paul. But Christ did not smite Saul because he had a plan for his life when he became Paul. By contrast, you and I do not, do not possess divine knowledge. We don't have omniscience. We don't know everything. We're, we're rarely as patient with people. You know, wisely, God does not delegate to us the authority to take the life of a theological adversary like Saul. If God so wills, they might take ours. You know, that would win us a martyr's crown. But if we take theirs rather than martyrs, these become murders. And we know 1 John 3.15 that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Therefore, that prospect of you know, sneaking up behind Saul never enters the mind of Ananias nor of any of the apostles. We're not delegated with our Lord's authority to take divine vengeance into our own hands. The law is very clear on this in Deuteronomy, and it's repeated in Romans and Hebrews. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So like Christ, Christians are instructed to endure persecution. Now I'm not here talking about succumbing to a random act of violence in a dark alley. It's unrelated to your testimony for Christ. Nobody even knows you're a Christian. They just come after you. I'm not not talking about that. As a human being... You have the right to defend your life and the life of others around you. But persecution for the Christian faith is is different. We're free to flee, but we're never to strike back against religious adversaries, the likes of Saul. Why not? We don't know if God might have something else going on with Saul. You might recall the movie, I hope you can anyhow, titled End of the Spear. That portrayed how five Christian missionaries is back in the 1950s, including a couple men, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. 
they allowed themselves to be murdered by natives in Ecuador, out in the jungle. That, that is a true story, by the way. Though they had a gun, the, the missionaries did not fight back, and all five of them died. The eventual result, the long game, was that most of that tribe ended up receiving Christ. Decades later, the son of Nate Saint told the man who had murdered his dad, you didn't take my dad's life. He gave it. As did all of the apostles for the testimony of Christ and for the advancement of the gospel. It's probably worth noting in our day, you know, when there is so much preaching of God, guns, and freedom, how there is no crack team of assassins here dispatched by the 12 apostles. They weren't going to take out Saul, who unbeknownst to them at the time was going to become apostle number 13. This conversion of Saul, Acts chapter 9, it is the quintessential example of how you just never know. Who will be the next conversion by the Holy Spirit of God? So this example by our Lord, it it just puts on display this, this perfect patience of Christ. Personally, if I were in the early church, alive at this time, I would have quickly concluded, for Saul, there's no chance. No chance. God doesn't want him. God would never want any man like that. Saul has has proven himself impossible to reach. Impossible. And Jesus here proves everyone holding that mindset that we are wrong. There exists no person who cannot be reached. So we are to exercise the perfect patience as does our Lord. In verses 1 and 2, Saul, we read, was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He even went to the high priest. He asked for letters from him to uh, the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who were belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Think how awful. Dragging both men and women bound to prison. Yet our Lord patiently endures. Patiently endures. Why did Jesus endure? And for how long does he endure? Saul received the letters he requested. He's he's on his way to destroy the way when he encounters the way. Just outside Damascus where Christ appeared in in a display of, well, bright light projecting down from heaven. 
The voice of Jesus himself saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? One of the most profound statements describing our spiritual union with Christ found anywhere in the scriptures. Jesus does not ask, why are you persecuting my church? But rather, why are you persecuting me? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 23, says that God, by His Spirit, uh, immerses us or baptizes us, all believers, into one body. It is the body of Christ. And, of course, Jesus Himself is the head of this body, the church. And by exercising faith in Christ, we are all members of His body, become part of His body. It's, It's a metaphor that projects A true spiritual reality. Anything that is done to his body, the church, Christ takes personal. It it becomes as if you've done this very thing to me. Folks, this includes actions that are both negative and positive. Acts of persecution as well of well as acts of edification. If, if we Christians would grasp an understanding of how Jesus himself views it, we would treat Christ's body a little differently. Knowing that anything that you or I do as a Christian to encourage or to stimulate or to edify Christ's beloved church it becomes as if we have done it directly to Jesus himself. As Alistair Begg so often says, we are here to edify and multiply. Saul, by contrast, he's breathing threats of violence. Begins to... To see out of, out of a light, uh, you know, an image of a man. He asks, who are you, Lord? At this point, Saul could most likely still see. As verse 7 reveals, the men who were with Saul could hear, but they themselves could not see. A couple of Greek references I studied here state that the, the construction of this Greek language It insists that the other men could not see and thereby implies that in contrast, Saul actually did see Christ as he was revealed in the light. If that's accurate, and and I believe it probably is, uh, this would explain why Saul will later defend his apostleship in 1 Corinthians 9 by stating, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the risen Christ? And the answer is a resounding yes. Uh, as Paul clarifies later in that same epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the risen Christ had appeared to all of the apostles. Last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me also. So this is Christ appearing to him as we will see in the second half of our passage next week. He's blinded by the light. Nonetheless, he sees a man in the light he does not recognize. 
So in verse 5, he asks, well, who are you, Lord? And the man in the light replies, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told uh, to you what you must do. Wow. Consider yourself in Saul's shoes. That is a situation that would make anyone sick. You are in the process of hunting down Christians, even breathing threats of murder, when Christ himself stops you dead in his tracks. If I were Saul, do you know what I would be fearing? I would fear the greatest fear any man or woman could possibly fear. I would be fearing total and eternal damnation for my sins. And Saul is given three days to think about it. To to wait and to ponder what would a just sentence for Saul's sins be? Saul's scared, st- scared sick, I think. Three days not knowing what is going to come of him. I've given a sermon before on biblical fasting. Um, fasting's not a means of getting your way with God. It's not a quick way to lose a few pounds uh, Fasting is also not a mechanism or a, a trick for becoming holy and sanctified. Fasting is a condition of the heart so completely sickened over sin and sin's effects that you do not partake of food. In Saul's situation, he doesn't eat because he can't eat. For three days, Saul is petrified over the consequences of his sin. What will become of me due to my sin? If you wish to look up that message and listen at some point, the message is titled Biblical Fasting, given in January of 2017. That's a side note. In verse 8 we read, Saul got up from the ground, and, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. All he receives during three days is a vision of a man named Ananias, and Saul is informed he will regain his sight. That he does know. We're not given an indication that Saul is told his fate, yet at this point, I would be shaking in my boots. Praying for God's mercy that I would not be damned to hell forever. Is Saul going to get a reprieve, a pardon from Christ? We know he is. Why had the Lord Jesus waited so long? Why did Jesus endure the fury of Saul with patience for so long? 
And why does he save him? 1 Timothy 1.14 tells us why. The pardon of Saul came to prove, quote, that the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. With the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, writes Paul, so that in me as the foremost, as the chief of all sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul assures us that mercy was shown to him not because Saul deserved it, but because Saul did not deserve it. That is God's grace and forgiveness. You don't deserve it. And by this, Saul became Christ's way of displaying for us that it is possible that anyone could be saved. We, like Christ, must practice the same perfect patience with others. There never comes a point we can write people off, even if they're breathing threats against us. We never know what God may do or whom He may call. For Christ will reach whomever He is determined He will reach. You want a little further evidence? For reference, we only need to look as far as ourselves. In what depths of sin have we ourselves dwelled before Christ called us to faith and righteousness? Was not Christ Jesus just as patient with us? How then shall we not be patient with others? And think if our lives had ended before we were confronted with our sins and before faith in Christ Jesus had come. What would our just punishment be? Boy, that is a fearsome thought to behold. Is Christ not still being perfectly patient with others as he has been already to us? I would suspect that there are men and women much like Saul who are passing us by on the road every day. Christ is not going to confront them as we have seen in our example today. This is a one-time intervention by Christ upon Saul uh, to call him as an apostle. It's, it's one of the requirements of being an apostle is to have seen the risen Christ. This had to happen for Saul. But Jesus doesn't reveal himself in this same way day by day. Instead, Jesus sends us day by day 
And years later, this same man, Paul, will inform us in Romans chapter 10 that they won't believe on the name without having first heard. They won't hear without a preacher. And how will they preach unless they are sent? Oh, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news of good things. Where must our emphasis be? Paul here doesn't suggest in Romans chapter 10 that we are to anticipate Christ will ever again call people in this same way. Rather, he suggests just the opposite. They won't hear unless you go. And Jesus sends people to preach the good news. And this is exactly what we will see, including the commissioning of Saul in our passage next week. Going forward from there, the second half of this passage next week, going forward from there, we are going to see a Saul who immediately begins preaching the gospel. God is out ahead. He is tilling the soil, getting it ready for the seed of the word. There are people passing us by every day who are deathly afraid of what they are going to face when they die. They are. Our job is to tell them that Christ has been patient And that he has been waiting long enough. Let's pray. Father, looking at the scene of grace that Saul has been thrust into and recognizing how far gone he was. He was way far gone. Further than even us. Yet you reached out and you saved him. Father, convince us and pierce our hearts that you are still doing the same work today. That the reason your son hasn't returned is because you're not finished. You're not finished using us for the work that you've laid before us. And as we think of our sins that have been cleansed through the righteousness of Christ, having died for us, remind us that this grace is far more abundant than what we keep to ourselves. Lord, be glorified, be magnified. Go ahead of us, till the soil, make it ready for the seed, and give us the compassion to speak to a world that is dying. In Christ's name we pray, amen.